If you don't know, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and we've been traveling through this book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is about two things. It's first about rebuilding a broken city, the infrastructure, and that's the first half. And then the second half is about rebuilding individuals. So the first half is let's get walls built, let's get gates in, let's get new governors, let's get the infrastructure in place and rules and policies so that a city can flourish. And then the whole second half is in order to have a city flourishing, you don't just need fancy curbs and gutters, you need a people that are transformed, that there are renewed people. And so the whole second half is let's get a people that become the kind of citizens that can make sure Jerusalem is thriving and flourishing. So we're in chapter 12 right now. We'll finish it next week. Chapter 12 is the part that's about renewing the people. We're in that second half. And in chapter 12, there's a goal, and I'm gonna try to read it for you. It's the goal of this entire chapter. It's found in verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites, in all their places, to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness. What's the goal? Let's have a glad celebration. Their goal is to make sure that the time that they get together and what they do leads to gladness. So are they successful? That's their plan. Do they succeed? Verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Did their goal work? Yeah, right? The women are happy. If the women are happy, you succeeded, right? Happy wife, happy, yeah, happy spouse, happy house, right? Yes, it's successful. Did these people have an easy life? Oh, no. If you've been with us for the first 11 chapters, you know this, bennies weren't falling out of their pocket. It was hard times in Jerusalem. Some of them had to be forced to move into the city because no one wanted to live there. It was like, the Great Depression or the Dust Bowl or Grant's Pass in the 1980s or 2008 housing crisis. It was hard, hard times. And yet, they plan on being glad and they get gladness. Here's the sad fact of life. We grow out of gladness. Do you know that? The older we get, the less glad we are. Like, is anyone happier than my nine-year-old son, Myron? No. But Myron, from his perspective, must look at me as his dad and just think, man, my dad's got to be happy. He can eat whatever food he wants. No one's making him eat his veggies. He can buy whatever things he wants on Amazon. Doesn't have to ask anyone permission. He just buys what he wants. He can drive. He can watch whatever he wants on TV. He can stay up as late as he wants. Like everything that a child would think would make them happy, I've got. But am I happier than Myron? Here's what statistics show. 
children, on average, laugh or smile 400 times per day? How many times do adults laugh or smile? Some never. But on average, adults smile or laugh 14 times per day, right? From 400 times per day as a child down to 14 times. That's crazy, right? Think about a kid for a second. 400 times per day. How many hours of the day is a child awake? Too many, Matt. That's why I'm not happy. Right there. Go to bed. How do you get them in bed? <laughs> if I got that solved, I'd be happy. <laughs> Maybe 14 hours. That means they are smiling 28 times per hour. That's once every two minutes, right? That's amazing. What happened to us, right? Like adults, we need a happy hour. Time to be happy. Okay. <laughs> Kids don't need a happy hour. I mean, it's ridiculous. What happened to us? Science says this. It's about 50-50. 50% is you're born with a kind of DNA that makes you happy or not. And then the other 50% is based on you. So 50% is, man, some people, they're just born happy. You know those people. And then other people, they're born on Monday and they're just mad for the rest of their life. <laughs> but either way, half of our happiness is left up to us, that we get to figure out patterns of life and ways of doing things that can lead to happiness. So chapter 12, they plan on being glad, and guess what happens? They end up being glad. So there is in here a recipe that I think leads to happiness, to gladness, to joy, to great joy, so that's heard all over the place. And we can jump in and find out these little clues. Never forget, though, this people didn't have it good. So whatever excuse I might have that says, well, because of this, because of what happened in my life, or because of these, I can't be glad. These guys had it worse. You know their story by now. They were POWs from Babylon. Untold horrors had happened to them by the Babylonian empire. Bad, bad stuff. Moved back to a city with enemies all around threatening to kill them all the time. They were so poor, they had to mortgage out their farms. They had to sell their kids into slavery just to pay their bills, right? Human trafficking happened here. So whatever excuse I might have, they had it probably worse. But they plan and they get gladness. So let's check out this recipe. Should be a reminder for us because there are themes in scripture. And I believe God actually wants his kids glad. He's a father, Dads, do you want your kids to be glad? Does it make you happy when your kids are enjoying life and laughing and giggling? Of course it does. I think God wants us glad and he gives us kind of a recipe for gladness. So try to pick out the first ingredients. I think it's the most important ingredient. Just looking at these verses, verse 24. With their brothers they stood opposite, who stood opposite them to praise and to give thanks. Verse 27 to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, verse 38. 
Verse 40, so both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God. Verse 46, for long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. What's ingredient number one? Thanksgiving. Number one, you wanna be glad? Be thankful. The reason something broke in our brains, I think in Genesis chapter three, and that brokenness in our brain causes us to think in these patterns that actually rob us of gladness and rejoicing and joy and happiness. There's a bunch of them, I'll give you three. The first one is called hedonic adaption. So hedonism is like, you know, you know, happiness. So here's what that is. It's no matter what level we get to, we always want a little more, right? No matter what level we get to, we always want more. So you get the new car. Then a year later, they do a complete makeover of that car and it's so much better. I want the newer car. You get the nice house. After a month or so, yeah, it's just okay. I like that other house on the river. It's, it goes through all of us. No matter what we le uh, level we attain to, each of us, wherever we're at, there's always a little bit more and we're always wanting to adapt to it. And because of that, it always robs us of gladness. That's number one. Number two is called Goldilocks syndrome. You guys know the story of Goldilocks? She's in the woods, right? She stumbles into a house. In the house, there's food and beds. But what does she complain about? It's just not right. This food is too hot. This food is too cold. This bed is too hard. This bed is too soft, right? She wants it to be just right. She's not thankful that, man, I'm in the woods and there's food and there's a bed. No, she complains that it's not perfect. All of us have this. All of us are trying to jiggle the rules or move the dials in a certain kind of way where we make life perfect. And when you demand perfection from life, nothing will kill your gladness or cause havoc with your happiness than trying to make the world adjust to you. And advertisers, don't they play on this? They're always playing on this. Like I saw an advertisement a while back, it was like, are, are you not completely satisfied with your income? Call 1-800-BETTER-MONEY. I'm like, who in the world is completely satisfied with their income? Everyone can be like, well, I could use an extra hundred bucks, right? That's just, that's classic advertisement. Who's completely satisfied with their spouse or their house or their car or their job or their kids or school or their parents, right? Nobody is. So it plays on this Goldilocks thing in us. Like who here says, I am 100% satisfied in my job. Every employee I work with is perfect. My boss is as close to Jesus as possible. I only do the things that I love. I never do things that are hard for me. It always fits me perfectly. I love to go and I hate to leave. Anyone? No, right? That's not a job. That's a dream. Wake up. You're asleep right now. I have a great job, but there are things that I have to do that I'm like, okay, well, today's the day. Put my cup on, get ready for this, right? There's plenty of days like that. And that's fine. That's part of it for all of us. Nothing's perfect, right? Your house perfect? Or you're like, man, my house is absolutely perfect. It's awesome. The moment you get there, that neighbor will move next to you. You're like, I'm gonna sell. Or you get your tax bill. I'm gonna sell. This is crazy. There's nothing perfect, right? Have you ever been to a church that's absolutely perfect? 
If there is a perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it. <laughs> they don't exist, right? I love Edgewater, but I see the livers and the kidneys. I'm okay. And it's fine. But there's this thing in us where we believe we can just kind of move the lever just perfect. But it doesn't happen. So there's this incredible example of a man who could do that at a level that no one can do today. His name is Solomon. It's called the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is the testimony of a man who got everything. In chapter two, he just details it. Like, this is what I had, man. So his house, he works on his house for seven years. Matt, I worked on my house for seven years. Yeah, he wasn't fixing up a double wide. He had 10,000 people working on his house for seven years. What could you build with 10,000 people working for seven years? Unbelievable. He threw these parties, massive parties. Just the food, they've calculated out all the food that he brought in every day for these parties would be enough to feed 15,000 people. So our Memorial Day shindig was awesome. Kindergarten compared to Solomon. He, got, he, he bought singers, right? Taylor Swift, you're at my house. I just bought Sony. You belong to me, right? That's the level this guy goes. How about women? Had a thousand of them. Now, just for a moment, a thousand women. That's insanity, right? Here's what he says in chapter seven, verse 28. Out of a thousand women, I still haven't found the one. Still looking for her. Still looking for my soulmate. Still looking for the Goldilocks. Doesn't exist. Solomon could move every dial that you and I imagine would make us happy. He could move it perfectly. And he says in verse 20 of chapter two, he says, I hated life. Because unlike you and me, Solomon could move all the dials. And when he got all the dials perfect, there was no gladness. You and I have this thing. If I could just move that dial a little bit more, money a little bit more, spouse a little bit more, house a little bit more, job a little more. He's the king, right? We, we all think if I could just move it a little bit and it's a mirage that keeps out there, but we always think I'd be glad then, but we never are. And that same story of Solomon gets replayed all the time. People that make it at the top and they're still miserable. So the Beatles, greatest band ever. You could argue that. John Lennon, leader of the Beatles. Listen to what he writes a couple years before he dies. He writes this right here, quoting John Lennon. As, as close to Solomon as you can get today, dialed things in in life. Money can't buy me love. It's true. The point is this. I want happiness. I don't want to keep on with the drugs. Explain to me what Christianity can do for me. Is it phony? Can he love me? I want out of this hell. That's a modern Solomon. Dialed everything in, Goldilocks style, got as close as possible, still miserable. Goldilocks plays with our brains, right? We've got the adaption of just, no matter how high we get, we want higher. You've got Goldilocks syndrome. And then you have what's called missing tile syndrome. So you go into a bathroom and it's got a thousand pieces of tile in it and a thousand pieces of tile. They're all beautiful. They're all perfect. They're amazing. But one is missing. One's missing. 
What does your eye see? The one missing tile, right? You don't see the 999 good tiles. Your mind immediately goes to, hey, there's one missing tile. Because that's the way our brain is wired. Not to see the 99 things that are right and good in life. We see the one thing that's missing. And sometimes we're the missing tile. That we look at ourselves as the outward, the awkward, the, the outlier. So if we're a little bit overweight or really overweight, you go into a room and what do you see in that room? Perfectly flat stomachs, everyone healthy and beautiful, right? You've got bad skins, zits or pimples or whatever, and you go into a room and what do you see? Everybody with beautiful skin, right? You're bald or going bald and you go into a room and what do you see? Everybody with Fabio hair. What's wrong with me, right? It's this way that our brains work. Just naturally, they work against us. That's what they do. So we miss out. Culturally, we do the same thing. What does news focus on? The 99 good tiles? No, what's the focus of all 24-7 news? The missing tile. And it just beats it into our brain. Look how bad things are. Look how bad inflation is. Look how bad, you know, the perversion is. Look how, right? Just pounds it into your brain. So what do you see then everywhere? The bad stuff. And what are we missing? The beauty. Green lawns the good air, the clean rivers to play in, the lakes to go up and to enjoy, community, family. There's good stuff as well. But we're wired to focus in on the one missing tile. These three things, all of them are cured with one simple discipline and practice. You know what it is? Gratitude. Giving thanks cures you of all three of those robbers of your gladness. Every one of us should have a journal that's just on front of it, just Thanksgiving. Every one of us, if you want to have a glad day, you wake up in the morning and you just write out 10, 20, 999 things that you are thankful for. It's amazing because the Bible says give thanks in everything. Cure you of these things, give thanks in everything. Science has found this. Thankful people are happier. They have more energy. They're more hopeful. They're positive. They're more willing to help people. They have higher empathy. They are more able to forgive people and forget things that are done against them. They're less materialistic, less depressed, less anxious, less angry, less upset. You will get no better deal in life than practicing Thanksgiving for your gladness. This group, when they plan on being glad, the first thing that they begin to do is give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. Because that's recipe number, that's ingredient number one to the gladness recipe. Ingredient number two, look at these verses. Same ones almost. With their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and give thanks to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals and harps and lyres. And the singers, verse 42, sang with Jezariah, Jezrahiah as their leader. Verse 46, for long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. Recipe ingredient number two for the recipe of gladness is praise. 
Psalm 150, verse six says this. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. What does everything include? Everything. Naked mole rat. Everything that has breath praise the Lord. Ever watched a really good Disney movie? I think they're going extinct like the dodo bird, but if you go back 30 or 40 years, in those movies, what do all the animals do? They sing. It's good theology. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Romans 8, 20 puts it like this. All of creation is groaning and travailing, waiting for the unveiling of the sons of God. All of creation is waiting for the moment that you and I get to our proper role as kings and queens ruling with Jesus in a renewed creation, and they're going to explode in praise. The monkeys will praise. The hyenas will praise. The lions will praise. All of them. Your annoying neighbor's dog, its barking will be praise. That's coming. Dolphins, right? Everyone says dolphins are smart, that they have communication. What do you think dolphins say? I think they praise. I think they say, worthy is the lamb. I think that's what it translates to. Because everything that has breath, you and I were created with this purpose to praise God. And the predominant instrument for praise is not guitars and drums, as great as those are, or synthesizers or keyboards or trumpets. The predominant instrument is, guess what? Singing at your voice. That's the number one why is it important to praise? Why is it important to worship? Because when you praise, when you worship, you give something power. If you praise your career and talk it all up, you give it a power. If you praise money and talk it all up, you give it a power. You, whatever you praise, you give it a power in your life. I'll try to explain it like this. So everyone has an athletic team. If you follow sports, right? You've got your team. They're awesome. They're great. When your team wins, how does that make you feel? Like you're a winner, right? And if your team loses, how does that make you feel? Like a loser, you're depressed, right? Pass the Prozac, it's bummer. Why is that? Did you do anything to help your pro team win or your college team win? Mm -mm. It's because you praise them. And when you praise them, you give them a power over your heart, over who you are. When you praise King Jesus, Here's what should happen in your heart. You should be sucked into his royalty. You should know that one day you will rule and reign with him. One day you'll be a king or queen, ruling the cosmos with your king. That's what happens. You get brought into his glory. You get a power through praise of King Jesus. That's why it matters. Praise is this. Praise is your intellect on fire. So it's good to study. I love to study. But at some point, you have to quit studying and you have to reflect that information back to God. Praise is your intellect on fire. Sticking with the athletic metaphor. If you have a favorite player, let's say it's a quarterback. Let's say it's Bo Nix for the Ducks. It's hard for me to say that, but let's say it is him. Right, and you know his, you've studied him. You've got all the statistics down. You've written them all out. You know everything about Bo Nix. And you go to a duck game and you're up there and you're painted up like a living jersey of Bo Nix. And Bo Nix throws a 70-yard touchdown. What do you do in that moment? 
Or you're like, well, that's interesting. Let me take a note of that. Um, 70 yards added to his current total would be uh, 3,765 yards. That's great. Is that what you do? No, you jump up and scream and yell. You've got to praise, right? If you don't, something's wrong there. It's not more information. It's explosion. It's intellect on fire. What you know about him in that moment explodes and you can't keep it in. And you actually complete it. Something is formed when all the information you have explodes into praise. Something's formed that you can't form any other way. It has a power. It grips you. It changes you. God's people throughout history have always been a praising people. That somehow in that moment, when your intellect is on fire, it completes something. Something is birthed. Don't we all have that? When something great happens, when you see greatness, don't you have to praise it? When there's a great painting, you're just like, wow, that's amazing. I went to the Sistine Chapel. I was floored. Oh, you've got to praise it. When there's a great meal and it's served and it's delicious, what do you have to do in that moment? Wow, this is the best food I've ever had in my life. You have to praise it. When there's a great sermon, you have to praise it. When we don't, when we don't do that, there's a truncation right? What the intellect stops it instead of letting your spirit just soar and erupt into praise. Praise God. Praise his work. Praise his way. Praise what he does in creation. Praise what he does in other people. Praise his promises. Praise his word. Something happens to your gladness. It just grows and grows and grows because you are designed Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's number two. Number three is generosity. Look at verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them into the portion required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son, Solomon. They were generous. Is this a theme throughout Nehemiah? Because this is about the fifth time I've talked about giving. Yeah. What does giving have to do with my gladness? Remember, these are not a rich people. They'd lost farms. They'd been mortgaged to the gills. They're not rich people, but they're continually generous because giving and gladness are tied together. There's this research done by a guy named Jorge Mole and Jordan Grafman. And what they did was this. They took people. They are neuroscientists. They took people. They put a brain scan on them and had them do things that were associated with generosity. So let me read for you their findings, and then I'll try to translate it into English. So here's their findings. The results showed that when the volunteers placed the interests of others above their own, 
that generosity activated a primitive part of the brain that usually lights up in response to food or sex. Altruism, the experiment suggested, was not a superior moral faculty that suppresses basic selfish urges, which is what evolution says, that you and I got here by the selfish gene, that you just take more and more, might is right, survival of the fittest. What this study said show, uh-uh, the very base of our brains is actually built on generosity. So that suppresses basic selfish urges, but rather was basic to the brain, hardwired and pleasurable. So this is what they found when people acted generously. The parts of our brain that normally fire with love and marriage and everything that goes with it, the parts of our brain that normally fire with a really good meal, steamed kale. Those parts fired when you were generous. That finally, science caught up with the Bible because Jesus said a long time ago, it is better to give than to receive. You were hardwired for it. Practically, I think we know this. Have you ever met a generous person that was super grumpy? I haven't. Have you ever met a stingy person that was glad? I haven't. Because it's hardwired into our brain. Hardwired. You wanna be glad? Be generous. Number four, recipe or ingredient, groups. If you read this note, it's never loners. There's never like one guy by himself doing something. It's always groups of people together, functioning, participating, volunteers connected. So I read this study by Arthur Brooks this week. Super good. I'll give you one quote from it. He says this. If you don't know Arthur Brooks, read him. He's brilliant. He says this. It is almost impossible to be happy without friends. Friendships account for almost 60% of all the differences in happiness between individuals, no matter how introverted or extroverted they are. Community, people. You have to train yourself. If you have an opportunity this week to go help somebody, do it. If you have a choice this week between business and buddies, choose buddies. People and projects, choose people. Volunteer, linger, hang out. Show yourself friendly. Put down your phone. Smash your phone. Break your phone. Be around people, right? Listen, you'll be glad you did it. Literally, you'll be glad you did it. And then lastly and finally, maybe my favorite, is verse 31, 30, excuse me. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. So this group of people whose task is bring gladness into this city for the celebration, part of what they do is they purify themselves, they purify the people and they purify the wall and the gate. Why do they do that? Because it's defiled. Bad things had happened in that city. Child sacrifice 
had happened in that city. The people were defiled and the wall was defiled and the gates were defiled and bad stuff attracts bad stuff. Have you noticed that? Like just bad places. They just seem to stay bad places and they attract more bad stuff or bad things in myself. Man, those bad things in myself, they just seem to attract more bad stuff that just keeps getting bad and worse and worse and worse. It's a bad does. And the Bible only has two states, pure or defiled, that's it. Either you're pure or you're defiled, that's it. Either cities are pure or they're defiled. Either city gates are pure or they're defiled, that's it. There's two choices. And the New Testament says this, keep the marriage bed pure. Right? Don't defile the marriage bed. Keep the marriage bed pure. It's not the dating bed, there is no dating bed. There's only a marriage bed, that's it. And you're to keep it pure. So there are places, gates, walls, Levites, people that have been defiled because of sin, because of evil, because of temptation. So they purify it. Anyone ever felt that? Things in your own heart, defilement in your own heart, that man, when it comes about, when it's reminded of you, man, it just seems to suck you into more bad? Maybe gates or walls, places, certain events, certain things, certain times, they just seem to suck you into bad stuff. Because I think there's still defilement in our world. And I think it still needs to be purified. So how in the world do you clean? How do you clean gates and walls? How do you do this? Because we know how to clean almost everything now, don't we? COVID made us professionals at cleaning. We can clean houses and bathrooms and counters. We need to clean our cars. We know how to clean blood. How amazing is that, right? That you can take your blood, run it out into a machine, and it comes back in purified. That's amazing to me. And we all know this, the more expensive something is, the more valuable something is, the more time you spend purifying it. Somebody's got a new Tesla plaid, they're out waxing and washing all the time. But I've ne never seen a guy waxing and washing his primer black Datsun pickup, because it doesn't matter. The higher value, the more we spend on it. Hospitals have operating rooms that are incredibly clean. Why? Because the most valuable parts of you could be open there, your heart or your brain, and you can't have any kind of defilement getting into you or you'll die, right? The doctor can't pick his nose with a scalpel and then cut into your chest because that defilement spreads. That's what defilement does. It spreads. It's got to be clean. So we know how to purify all kinds of things. How do you purify cities and souls? How do you do that? Well, here's how they purify this city. Look at verse 31. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate. Here's what happens. Nehemiah grabs these groups of people and he sets them up and they start to walk from the dung gate and they actually walk around the city on the wall, praising and praying and singing and they purify the city. I think that's how you purify cities. You walk and you pray and you praise and you give thanks and you say, shut the gates on evil here. Build the walls against evil here. Purify our city. So this is what the elders have decided to do this Tuesday. We have a Tuesday morning meeting. 
every Tuesday, 6 a.m., 6 to 8. And it's great, wonderful. We're moving our meeting from here in the office. We're moving it to this Tuesday at 6 a.m. in front of the Grants Pass Courthouse. And we're inviting all of you to come with us. And we're going to walk around our city, that block, and we're going to pray that God purifies our city. That the gates and the walls that seem to have been broken down in our time and our culture are built back up. And our city is protected from pollutants and evil and what's gone defiled. So that's this Tuesday, 6 a.m. at the courthouse. Meet us there. Let's make a big enough group that people are like, what in the world is happening right now? Come. I think that's how you purify cities. How do you purify souls? Right? Some, it's shame that you hold on to about something that you did. And whenever you're reminded of that activity, that spirals you down. The enemy uses it as a club to beat you. He tempted you to do it. When you did it, now he beat you with a club because you did. And it hurts you. For others, the defilement is something that was done to you. And the enemy does the same thing with it. He tries to make your identity become that defilement. And you don't know what to do. And your soul, your soul feels defiled. And there's patterns of thoughts. And there's weakness and temptation. And there's entrance to the enemy because of that defilement. What do you do about dirty souls? Jesus said this, nothing more valuable than the human soul. Matthew 16, 26. What should it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Jesus says your soul, one soul is worth more than the world's entire GDP, $100 trillion. How do you purify something so valuable? There's only one way. Listen to the words of 1 John. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from some sin, most sin, all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That when the angels came to the shepherds there in Luke chapter two and they said, we are bringing you glad tidings of great joy, it was because your soul could be cleansed. He's the one that can purify your soul. Take the pollutant, things that were done to you, things that you have done that you're shamed about. He's the only one that can purify souls. It's Jesus. He's the cleanser of souls. 